Good morning. Here is something you may not know. Ever heard the 12 days of Christmas? We've got a little bit of Christmas left. Ever since the fourth century, all Christians, the church, they celebrated the season of Christmas, the 12 days. And the first of the 12 days was December 25th. So Christmas has not ended until today. Merry Christmas. Now, I've been told that we need to welcome those folks who will be observing and participating with us from, from everywhere. <laughs> but it's good to have all of you who are with us this morning. I am going to ask you, I got to do a little Phoenix Seminary theology on you this morning. So I need you to crank up your cranial a little bit for me this morning. Because there's something you need to understand when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. I've uh, um, been whining about this turning 70 now for a few months, and uh, uh, I, I'm in that delusional age where everybody around me that's my age just seems older. <laughs> and uh, Holly uh, and uh, her good friend, Dr. Jackie Chadwick, we all turned 70 all within three months of each other. So they had a little dinner party for us, and Bev and Wayne Leaston were at the party. And uh, I was talking to Wayne, whining about turning 70, and he reminded me that, remember Wayne Leaston, he was our pastor of family and counseling ministry for a thousand years here? Well, well, Wayne's 86. I said, you're 86? What are you, afraid of heaven or what? And he says, no, 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 no. I said, well, what, you, what was your 70s like? He said, Daryl, my 70s, that was the best decade of my life. I went, you're kidding I said, we're having lunch. So about a week later, I took him out for lunch and he had a list. You know, Wayne had his list. On the top of the list, relationships. Says, finally, I have time that I could actually engage in some depth of some relationships. And I started thinking about relationships. You know, they become a really a big deal to you, especially when many of your relationships are departing the earth. And you start valuing the people who, who you still can touch and listen to and hug and hold. But then I thought, you know, I maybe need to rethink the most important relationship I have. And of course, that's with my Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm talking about is this. It's so easy, at least for me, for Jesus to, to drift into, as far as a relationship, to an icon. Kind of somebody that I... I worship as my Lord. No question he's my Lord. That's why I worship him. And he's my Savior. No question. That's why I, I'm grateful. And, and I praise him. But sometimes I feel like I'm his defense attorney. Because I believe in him and I argue for him and I defend him. And it's like I'm on retainer and he's my client. And I'm thinking, you know, something is wrong with this. And then Jesus says something like this in the Gospel of John. In chapter 15, he says this in verses 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father. I've made them known to you. Friends. Jesus wants a friendship with me. But then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What kind of friendship is that? 
If I came up to you and said, would you be my neighbor? If I said, you know, would you be my friend? Here's the only thing. You got to do everything I command you to do. How do you spell jump in the lake? I mean, there's no way we're going to have a friendship. That sounds like that's a bit one-sided. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says here. I want you to be friends. I want to have a relationship as a friend to you. But you're going to have to do everything I say. Now, the Hebrew word for friend is the word ahiv. It comes from the same root in the Hebrew for love, ahava. And the concept of ahiv, a loving friend, in the scripture has always meant the same thing. You are concerned about the well-being of another. When you are consumed with the well-being of another, that is friendship. That is loving friendship. And that's what Jesus says that he's offering right here. But he says, you ever better obey everything I say. I don't know, that sounds more like slavery to me than a friendship. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Because if you want to learn about Jesus as a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, well, then study the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to learn how Jesus is the perfect example of a human being, of a person, well, then study Luke. If you want to study, is Jesus really the answer to the real questions of life? What well, a study Mark. But if you want to learn the heart of Jesus, it's the gospel of John. It's the gospel of John. I've spent the last year just restudying, reviewing this remarkable gospel. Remember, John was the closest friend to Jesus when he was on this earth. What was his nickname? The disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, it's because of John, we have John 19, the only eyewitness account to the crucifixion of Jesus. Why? Because he was there. All the other lugs took off. He was at the foot of the cross. That's why the church fathers as far back as Irenaeus in the second century, who was a student of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John in the first century. Who cares? I care. Because they all say, this is John's book. This is John's eyewitness to his intimacy to the very heart of the one who loved him so, his friend Jesus. And John even tells us why he comes back. He read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, most likely, but he comes back later and writes this gospel of John. And he says, let me tell you why I'm doing this. At the very end of John, he says this in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Not everything Jesus did is in this book. This book's got a very direct purpose and meaning. He says, but these have been written for one reason. So you know, Jesus is the one. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one God provided for the provision of our forgiveness and a relationship with him as a father. And he's the son of God. Jesus is the one who knows God and will let us know everything God wants us to know. And by believing, by faith, trusting him, that we would have this kind of life in his name, this eternal life, which is actually a relationship with God. Remember a few uh, weeks ago, Pastor Jamie clarified for us the difference between religion and relationship. See, religion is simply... Um, uh, 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 self-reformation. I want to be a better person. 
Well, if you want to be a better person, then, then you got all kinds of religions to choose. Hindu, Buddhism, Islam, anything. Religion is self-basically reform. But that's not a relationship. A relationship is where I'm not into self-reformation. I'm into transformation. I want my soul changed. I don't want to be better. I want to be different. And I want to be my soul to be different. And apparently Jesus is the one in a relationship that creates that transformation. This isn't about religion. Jesus never was into religion. So in these first five verses of chapter one, he says, note now that this is about a relationship. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter six, don't you know God said, I'll be a father to you. You're not just a mere creature anymore, fearing your creator, trying to guess and figure out what God wants you to do with your life. But rather you are now sons and daughters with a heavenly father who wants you, has made known all things that he needs for you to know. Well, in this relationship, he takes the first five verses and this is where I've got to give you, we got to dig deep a little bit for some theology. Now, relax, there'll be no test, no quizzes. You won't be graded. Well, at least not by me. The beam of seat, that's a different story. But the fact is, I want you to look at these first five verses because out of the gates, John wants you to understand who Jesus is. Why would he say, I want to be your friend, but to be my friend, you're going to have to obey all my commandments. That doesn't make sense. But it will if you listen to what John says here in the first five verses. It all begins with in the beginning. Look at verses one and two of John chapter one. In the beginning, John says, with the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now what is this in the beginning? What, what beginning? The beginning, beginning. The same one referred to in the first, very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. This beginning is before anything was created. Any angel, any galaxy, any universe, any dimension. Before anything was created, there was God. He was there. He's the creator. But was he alone? Later, John's going to tell us in 1 John 4, 8, that one of the basic essence nature of God is that God is love. Now, I know we heard that all over the place. We're kind of immune to it. But remember, love is not just something God does, like John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Love is sometimes a verb, but in that verse, it's not a verb. The verb to be is, is. God is. That's the verb. Love. Love is a predicate nominative. You go, whoa, write that down, sweetheart. That's worth something. No, 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 no. Listen. Predicate nominative simply means it restates the nature of the nominative, of the subject. So it's not just that God loves. His very nature is love. Now do the math. If to love in biblical understanding is to care about the well-being of another, how do you do that if there is not another? And so at the beginning of everything, if God's alone and God is love, then he's a narcissist because he can only be concerned about the well-being of himself. But what does John say here? In the beginning was the word and the word was what? With. The normal word for with is the word soon, to be with somebody. 
in the Greek. But he uses the word pros. The word for face is pros upon. Pros, face to face. That God was not alone in the beginning before creating everything. There was someone with him. And he was called the word, the logos. Even Augustine, that great theologian, he made a statement when people get all confused about the Trinitarian idea that God's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Augustine said, God has always been the lover. The Son has always been the beloved. We are beloved by God because we're in the Son. And the Holy Spirit always has been the love itself. And so this concept of in the beginning with God was the Logos. Well, who is this Logos? No mystery. Verse 14, John says, and the word became flesh. And we call that what? Christmas. He says, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw, we saw his glory, what he was like. Glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And so the Logos, who was with God, in the beginning, before anything was created, so therefore God in his nature has always been loved, always cared for the well-being of the Lagos. But now he becomes, remember Gabriel shows up, first to Mary, then to Joseph and says, and the Lagos, his name will be while he's on this earth, what? Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior in some way. Now, now, why does John, right out of the gates, wants us to know this? I mean, he's, he's the first two verses. It's because you can believe a lot of things about your relationship with Jesus, but you better have this one right. You better have this one right, or you'll never answer the question, why would he say, be my friend, but do everything I say? Now, why, why does John come out? Why does he just say Jesus? Why does he come out with, in the beginning was the word and word was with God. Well, the answer is because John was Jewish. But he lived among the Greeks. And the word logos to the Jews was a big deal. To the Jews, the word logos meant revelation. Everything God wants to communicate to you was logos, the expression of truth. But to the Greeks, logos expressed something different. Expressed the purpose, the meaning behind everything. And so here, John basically says, Jesus is the one. Logos. He's the one that God revealed everything God wants us to know. He's the one that basically is the meaning and the purpose behind all things. And he was pros, face to face, intimate with God. But then he's called the son. Well, if Jesus is the son of God, that must mean he, he, he must be a little less divine because there's God, the father, and then he's the son. Well, I have two sons. They're doing great, by the way. John's 46, Kent's 44. Boy, John's starting to lose his hair. That is so depressing. I'm buying a lot more hats for him, you know, because I can't handle that myself. Remember that delusional age I'm living in. Well, they're my sons. So I'm father, they're sons. I'm human. Since they're my sons, they must be less human than me. Amen? Hello. That doesn't make any sense. And so father-son is the relationship role. It has nothing to do with someone's nature. 
And apparently when God and the Logos, how are we going to describe our relationship when you go at Christmas and come on earth? What's the relationship these human beings would understand? How about a relationship between a father and a son? And how a son feels about his father. And so that was why the Lagos was declared the only begotten son of God so we would understand the relationship. He was there in the beginning with God. And what does John say? He was God. But then there's this creation thing. There's something else. Look at verse three. All things came into being through him, the Lagos. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, does that mean what it says? I'm one of those radical Bible teachers that actually believe the Bible means what it says. Here's the question. How did God create everything? Well, I, 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 I'm a, a, a theistic evolutionist. I'm a scientist. I, I believe in evolution, but I do believe God directed evolution, and that's how he created everything so over billions of years through evolution. That's fine. Have a cup of coffee. <laughs> no, no, I believe it was six days. God could literally create everything in six days. Come on, he's God. All right, join the first guy for a cup of coffee and have a good conversation. But I will tell you what both guys will, will agree with. Psalm 37, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God spoke the creation. How he did it, the mechanisms he used, not a big issue with me. But the fact he spoke creation. Now here's the question. Whose mouth did the breathing? The father or the son? Because how does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, spoke everything into existence. You know, next time you're with somebody and they're acting a little bit self-divine, or you have a little bit of vision of self-divinity, just ask them or yourself the very simple question. Show me the last galaxy you created out of nothing. <laughs> because divinity necessitates the ability to create, to create out of nothing, the heavens and the earth and the world and its host. John says, all things came into being by him, the son, the logos. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Could that be any more clear? Oh, I know there's a few of you saying, well, you have another verse. You know me. <laughs> Paul says, okay, you want to make it clear? Let's make it clear. In his little letter to the Colossians, he says this in Colossians chapter 2. Joe, no, chapter 1, verse 13, for he says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Who's the son? Verse 15. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, invisible, visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, the son, and for him, the son. 
Yeah, but it says he's firstborn. I mean, I've got the little knocks on the door. Hello, we're here to make sure you understand that Jesus was the first created being. Church even struggled with this the first few hundred years. Was Jesus, the son, actually created by the father? Right there, firstborn. What did John just say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In the beginning, before anything created, who was with God from an eternity past? The Logos. It wasn't created. Matter of fact, this word firstborn always means in the scripture authority over. That's what Paul explains. All things are created by him. Therefore, all things are created for him. He is basically the prime inheritor. He has authority over all creation because he was the initial creator. That's firstborn. Has nothing to do with birth order. If you don't believe that, ask Esau in the Old Testament. Created by and for the son. So who does Jesus think he is that he would say, you want to be my friend? Then obey all my commands. Well, there's that forever divinity thing. Who does Jesus think he is? Forever divine. Then there's that creator thing. Created all things for him. Has authority over all creation. But then there's this third thing. In verses four and five, this Light you up thing. Listen to how he closes this paragraph, John, at the beginning of the gospel. In him, the sun was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He is not only the one that's been eternally divine, with God, is God. He's not only the one that eternally is the creator all things by him, for him, but he's the light that came into darkness. What is that all about? Well, what, what is darkness? Well, throughout scripture, darkness always referred to ignorance, to deception. And it's basically, you don't know the meaning, the purpose and if you don't believe Jesus is the one that God told you everything you need to know, you don't even know what God has in mind about you or it, the creation. And so in that ignorance, in that deception, I say deception because in John chapter 8, Jesus says the author of darkness is the devil himself. He's the original deceiver. He's the father of all lies. Because when you're in darkness, you're ignorant, you, you are deceived, all you're left is with guesses. All you can do is guess what God may want for you, your meaning, your purpose in life. All you can do is guess that maybe, that maybe God has a plan for your life and how this whole universe works. Now, maybe you don't have enough confidence to guess yourself. So you will go to some PhD or some DDD or VD or dilly doody, whatever. You, you start trusting somebody else's, but beloved, they're all guessing. I was watching this very emotionally moving commercial. It begins with a few of the stars. These children looking at the mighty creation. And then the voice of Stephen Hawking. And that kind of autobiotic voice comes on. And it says, we look to the heavens. Be curious. Because it lifts humanity. And you go, ha. Ah, 
I want to lift humanity. So how do I lift my humanity? I look to the stars and I be curious. So I look to the stars and I'm curious. And all I come up with more questions, meaning more guessing, and nothing's lifted up other than my fact that I'm in darkness. Stephen Hawking's, I know you got it figured out now, but you didn't then. Because the reality is darkness is I don't care who you are, how smart, how many degrees you talk to anybody you want. In essence, they have to admit they're guessing what is the purpose of life. They're guessing what is the meaning of life. They're guessing how does this world flow and how does one live in it? And thus, since you're left with guessing, you're left in fear. Why do you think Jesus said, and the truth will set you free? Free from what? Fear. Because you know the one. Who? The one who's your friend. The one who has been divine forever. Who's the creator of all things. And knows all things. And lights you up. You see, but you know, if he's the light came in the darkness, then why didn't everybody recognize him as the light? I mean, if you came into this room and you flipped a switch and the lights went on, everybody would know the lights turned on. Why didn't it work with Jesus when he came at Christmas? Well, that's answer simple. Not everybody in the room would know the lights were turned on if they were blind. And that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded their eyes so they could not see the light when the light switch was turned on and they held on to their guessing because their guessing served themselves better than knowing what the truth is. So, it was a great ancient historian, Philip Schaff, who wrote this great description of Jesus. Here's what he said. This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on matters human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or any poet. Without writing a single line, without writing a single line, he set more pens and motions and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. This is my friend. This is the one. So maybe Jesus says, I want you to be my friend, but I'm serious. I want you to be able to experience my friendship. And if my friendship is that I am totally committed to your well-being, the only way you're ever going to experience my friendship is if you trust me enough to do everything I've told you to do. It's the only way you'll enjoy the friendship that I'm offering you. Yes, I come to church and I worship. I worship during the week because he is Lord. 
And yes, I live my life out of gratefulness because he's my savior. I am given and been adopted as a child, a son of the, with a heavenly father. But during the week, I have a friend. And I do everything he says. Because I can experience his friendship. And it is in this relationship my soul is transformed. I'm not into religion and self-reformation. I'm not trying to keep a lot of rules and regulations. I'm not trying to impress people about how spiritual I might be. It's a relationship with my friend. And for me to enjoy the experience, that relationship of friendship, I need to do everything he says. I need to obey every command. Oh, great. Now I got to go and memorize all the commands of Jesus. And so I'm going to write them on my on a piece of paper and put them up and I'm going to check them off every day. Monday, 40 commands of Jesus, 20 commands of Jesus. Boy, I got to spend the whole week trying to remember all the commands of Jesus. You know, when Jesus called a sheep, that was not a compliment. Sheep are the dumbest animals on the planet. Jesus made it really easy. Let's go back to that paragraph when he said, I want to be your friend. And I want you to be my friend. Back in John 15, He said this in verse 12, just a couple verses before. This is my commandment. Not plural, not 40, 50, 60 of them to try to keep them like a religious uh, list. But this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this, that one is willing to lay his life down for the well-being of his friend. And that's what he did for us. And that's what he's calling us to do for each other. So apparently the commands of everything that Jesus says, do everything I command you to do, has something to do with the way we treat people. How do we treat people? We care about their well-being. Anybody that I bump up against, what's on my mind? What can I do? Is it a kind word? Is it stop and pray for them? Is it some physical need that I actually have something that I could give to them? Is it just spending some time honoring them by listening to their story? How do I treat people? How do I communicate that I'm really on the top forefront of my mind? Is your well-being. That's why, remember I've shared this with you. Remember the church father, Jerome, 8th century, shared the story about when John, the apostle John who wrote this gospel was so old, he couldn't even walk. They had to carry him around from church to church. But everybody wanted to hear him speak because this is the last, at that time, the last living eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so you can go, he's playing at Scottsdale Bible Church next Friday night, tickets are 20 bucks. Are you going to show up? You bet I'm going to show up. So we all fill up this auditorium and they carry John and they sit him down. And now we're ready. We got our notepads. We're ready to take notes. And he speaks. My little children love one another. Ooh, love one another. Okay, what's number two? Love one another. Okay, didn't you just say that? All right, all right. Love one another. Okay, what's number three? Love one another. 
I paid 20 bucks for this. I want my ticket back. And apparently that's what happened because they pushed back because they asked him, why is it that he would not say anything more than love one another? And this was his response. This was the Lord's command. And if this were done, it would be, catch this, no list. It would be all sufficient. I don't have to think about the commands of Jesus. I don't think about one. That's how I treat people. And how I treat people, I care about their well-being. Every single one that I bump into. And if I am indeed carrying out that command, then I'm experiencing friendship. One who's always been divine. The one who's created everything. And the one who knows everything. And as I experience that friendship, that's how transformation takes care of my soul. So what do I, what's the first step? You know, I'm just an old geezer with blood on my tunic. Could I just, we make it so hard. Do you believe the spirit of God is within you? That spirit of God somehow guides us. How so? Answer. Just do the next right thing. Every time you bump into someone, anyone, stranger, friend, family member, just say, Lord, what's the next right thing for me to do? Because we are justified by his truth and his truth is what is right. The commands of Jesus Christ are always right and precious altogether. So all I've got to do is just, Daryl, do the next right thing right in front of you, to the person right in front of you, and you'll be experiencing the friendship of Jesus Christ and the transformation of one who's always been divine, has created everything, and knows everything. You say, but aren't the commands of Jesus hard? No, they're simply a clue to having a great day. And if you have enough great days, you start believing that you have a great life. And you want to know why? What a friend we have in Jesus. And I'm not going to sing anymore. (laughs) But you got the point. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Tomorrow's the day of epiphany. It means the aha day. It's when it all makes sense and we're ready for 2020. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for John to make sure right out of the gates we would understand who you are. And Lord, if anybody has the right to say, if you want to be my friend, if you want to enjoy my friendship, then do all that I say. And what I say, my command, is just be a friend to others. Care about their well-being. And let me transform your soul. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.